there's a certain satisfaction that we get out of seeing somebody get what's coming to them. We love to put ourselves in the shoes of the hero at the end of the story when they finally defeat the villain. And as a father of three girls, the villain that comes to mind for me is Prince Hans of the Seven Southern Isles, Southern Isles from Frozen. At the end of the movie, Anna, Princess Anna, takes the liberty to give him a closed-fisted punch, sending him over the ship that they are on. It feels good to see our enemies defeated on screen and in real life. But this morning's text shows us that the story of defeating our greatest enemies works out much differently than it does in the movies, or maybe how it does in real life if we were to write our own story. We, nor any other person or thing we put our hope in, is able to defeat the enemies that we face. And worse yet, the greatest enemy that we face is not outside of us, but comes from within our very hearts. In the past couple of weeks, we've seen the people of Israel, as we've walked through 1 Samuel, ask for and receive a human king. And even though God has proved over and over that he is the one who will protect his people, they demand a king so that they can be like the other nations. God warns them that asking, this king that they're asking for is only going to oppress them, but they refuse to listen, demanding this king that they can see and touch. And as we saw last week, this king that they had asked for looked pretty good externally, but he didn't have the heart that was necessary to be a truly great king. The story continues this morning in 1 Samuel chapters 11 through 12. Please turn with me there this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, you can find one under the seat in front of you, and that text will be on page 225. It will be in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, the larger numbers of the chapter numbers, the smaller numbers of the verse numbers, and if you don't have a Bible this morning, we would love to give you one free of charge. They're on the table there at the back of the sanctuary. So we'll read... 1 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, which will be an exercise in, in your attention span and also mine in reading all of this. So let's read this together this morning. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the good news of the men of Jabesh, or the bad, told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah were 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, that you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. 
Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you've not defrauded us or oppressed us or take anything, anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed as witness this day. They have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt, the Egyptians oppressed them. And then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot their Lord, their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and then the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Astaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came in against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, if you will both you... And the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. It will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know that and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty." For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider the great things he has done for you. But if you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. The emphasis of this morning's text is that God saves his rebellious people from their enemies and from themselves. 
The beginning of chapter 11 shows us why the Israelites wanted a king. The people of Jabesh-Gilead were under attack from the Ammonites. Now, if you're familiar with the region, uh, so Jabesh was 20 miles, is 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which would have butted up against Ammonite territory. Now, the Ammonites were actually related to the Israelites. Abraham, uh, um, yeah, uh, so uh, the story of Israel begins with God promising Abraham a son. And the Ammonites were descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. And despite that connection, they had a history of hostility with the Israelites. Deuteronomy 28 tells us that the Ammonites failed to help the Israelites on their way through the wilderness into the promised land. And they also took part in hiring Balaam, a man to curse the Israelites on their way. And Nahash, the leader of the Ammonites, has now besieged the city, continuing that uh, history of hostility. The men of Jabesh apparently knew that they couldn't win the battle, so they, they sue for peace. They want to make a treaty with Nahash, but the demand Nahash gave them was severe. He would gouge out all the right eyes of the men. Now, scholars think that gouging out the right eye would have crippled them militarily because during combat of that day, they would cover their left eye with the shield, and then the right eye would be the one to look out at the enemy. So... Nahash wanted to do this so that they wouldn't be able to pose a threat to him, perhaps, in the future. That may be true, but Nahash has a a broader goal, one that he states, to bring disgrace on all of Israel. And perhaps they had some distant grudge against their distant relatives. But for whatever reason, Nahash's goals go beyond simply conquering the city. And the men of Jabesh were given seven days to send out messengers throughout Israel, And these messengers arrive in the town where Saul lives, and they report what's going on. And in verse 5, Paul is coming into town. He asks, why are the people weeping? And they tell him. And in verse 6, something happens to Saul. Verse 6 says, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now, as we saw last week, um, this, this Spirit of God rushing upon Saul isn't necessarily reflective of his spiritual state, Instead, God is going to use this man that they had sinfully asked for, this king they had sinfully asked for, to save his people from their enemies. God takes this king who is sort of neglecting his duties by trying to play the farmer and fills him with zeal to protect his people. And filled with righteous anger from the Lord, he devises an oxen and sends it throughout Israel in a call to arms. Come and fight or else this will happen to your property. God is the primary actor in saving his people, and that's made all the more clear by the people's response. The dread of the Lord falls upon them, and they weren't afraid of Saul, but of God. So God's spirit rushes upon Saul, and then God motivates the hearts of the people to act on the behalf of the city of Jabesh. And the people gather as one man, unified in the purpose of protecting the city and preventing Israel from being humiliated and the name of her God from being tarnished. And ultimately, we see 130,000 men come out and respond to this call to fight, and the Ammonites are utterly defeated. God had saved his people, his rebellious people, from their enemies, and it was time to celebrate. The people were ready to rally around this king they had asked for and consolidate his power by taking out those worthless fellows that had spoke against Saul back in chapter 10. But in an act of grace, Saul spares them. He says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for to Day the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And this is perhaps the best line that Saul gets in all of Scripture because he recognizes that it is by God's power and not his that Israel has been saved. 
Then Samuel calls them all to go to Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is a very significant place in the history of Israel. It's the place where the Israelites arrived in the promised land for the first time. God had spread uh, the waters of the Jordan River, and they had walked over dry land to this place and set up uh, 12 stones as a remembrance of what God had done. God had brought them back to this place where, where he was showing them that he was the one who brought them to this land, and he was the one who was, by his power, would keep them there. Still, God allows Saul to be made king over his presence, in his presence. So despite their rebellion, God had saved his people from their enemies. And he still does that today. Now, as we think about how this relates to us, a number of questions need to be answered so that we don't fall into misapplying how this might work out for us. And the questions are, who are God's people today? Who are their enemies? And how do we fight? So first, who are God's people? Well, God's people in Samuel uh, were a distinct people who were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they were delivered out of Egypt and led through this wilderness and given a law that combined civil and uh, religious authority. And they were brought into this land with clearly defined boundaries that took up a very small portion of the total land mass of the earth. The people of God today, however, are the recipients of the promise God gave to Abraham to bless all nations through an offspring. And in the New Testament, we find out that that offspring is Jesus Christ, the only true and great king. And anyone put, who puts their hope, anyone from any nation, any language, any tribe who puts their hope in Christ will be saved and become a part of the people of God. So God's people today are those who make up the church of Jesus Christ. So that's who the people of God are. Now, who are the enemies of God's people? Well, since the people of God are in every nation, and no nation can be seen as the people of God, and no nation can be seen purely as the enemies of God. Instead, the enemies of God's people are primarily spiritual. Even in this story where the, where the enemies seem so physical, there are greater spiritual realities underpinning it. The name of the villain of this story points us to that fact. Nahash. Nahash in Hebrew means snake or serpent. So in the story, God and God's people are threatened by a man named Snake, and God empowers a man to save them from Snake. What does this do? It draws us back to the very beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, where a snake, who was Satan, was responsible for leading in Adam and Eve into sin by eating the fruit in the garden. And like Israel, they were led to believe that they needed something more than God had provided them. And as a result, we have all the violence that we have seen throughout history and up until today result, as a result of this failure to trust God. But in that very passage, in Genesis 3.15, God promises, again, an offspring to Eve to crush the head of the serpent, to crush the enemy who had led mankind into sin. The defeat of Nahash, the one who would bring disgrace on Israel, looks back at that promise, but also looks forward to that ultimate full promise in the coming of Christ. On the cross, Christ, who was God and man, defeated our enemy, Satan, and redeemed us from the penalty of our sin. So the people of God today are Christ's church, and their primary enemies are spiritual. And the remaining question is, how do we fight? And perhaps a, a preliminary question to that is whether we need to fight at all, or whether that language is appropriate for Christians. Ephesians 6:12 shows us that we are truly in a struggle. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, some take the error of this militaristic language that the Bible uses and misuse it by employing it in the very ways that we're told not to in this verse, by applying it to enemies, that, perceived enemies that are flesh and blood toward nations and individuals. And this is a mistake. But another way to go wrong is not to misuse this language, but to simply fail to allow the language of spiritual warfare that we find throughout the Bible to be a part of how we think about living our Christian lives. It's understandable why some of us may be hesitant to do so, given the abuses they have seen. But we can't let others abusing what Scripture says be the driver of our understanding of what Scripture says. We can let God speak for himself. And when we do, I think we'll find that it prevents the very abuses that we are afraid of. So we're to fight. But how? Well, we're to fight in ways that recognize that it is God who is the one who defeats our enemies. So a great place to begin is to pray to that God. Pray to that God who gives us victory. Pray that we would see the deceptions that our enemy, Satan, throws our way for what they are. Pray that we would recognize when he's trying to discourage us or lead us astray. We can pray in thankfulness to God for what we have because that makes us more immune to when our enemy tries to lead us away and say that what God hasn't given you is enough. You really really need this thing. We can also pray for with other believers for those same things. And pray for those who don't know Christ that they may see through our enemy's deceptions and repent and believe in Christ. So we, we fight by praying. Another way we fight is to embrace exile. So the pattern of how we are to engage in this world is given to us in the Old Testament. But it's not found here in 1 Samuel. It's found later in Israel's history. In the book of Jeremiah, where because of Israel's sin, they're sent into exile in Babylon. And there, they're called to build houses and to plant fruit trees and work for the good of the city, the good of those who don't believe the same way that they believe. The New Testament takes this pattern that we find in Jeremiah and makes it normative for all Christians in all times. We're not to live as pure natives to any nation, but instead live like exiles and sojourners, ambassadors of heaven, who never really feel quite at home. And I know, uh, after speaking to uh, a few of you, several of you, maybe many of you, that you don't feel quite at home here in Boston. And it's amazing how people from different parts of the country can, can feel that difference and kind of feel out of place. And we're blessed at this church to have people from many parts of the world who may feel that even more deeply. But though, it's the, though it can be difficult, embracing that feeling of out-of-placeness, it's an opportunity for us as a church to, look, to, to embrace this exile, this call to exile together with people who are different that can help us see maybe where we put undue weight on things that draw us away from finding our primary identity as the people of God and citizens of heaven. And we need each other because maintaining this posture of exile is difficult. And we're tempted to either pull away from culture or live in isolation, and you can even do that in the city, or to simply be absorbed into the culture. And the tension we're called to be in is living in the world and not of it. And that's, that's the fight. That's the thing we strive for. And our enemy is happy to have us go to the extreme of either one. Like Nahash, our enemy would pluck out one of our eyes so that we either pull back from culture and criticize it from a distance or pluck out our other eye so that we can't see how living in a particular culture is shaping us or perhaps misshaping us. This is a monumental task, but we're not called to do it alone. God has given us his people. 
And God has given us his word and his spirit in our hearts to lead and guide us. Finally, we're to look forward to the kingdom. James Russell Lowell, uh, abolitionist native to right here in Cambridge, born in 1819, wrote these words about the hope for triumph over slavery in his day. He said, truth forever on the scaffold. So a scaffold is like a place of execution. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown stands God within the shadow, keeping watch over his own. Lowell recognized the the abuse of power and oppression of people is a perennial problem in all times and places. And one of the reasons I love sci-fi is because I think they generally understand that even as time and technology progress, that human nature remains the same. And there will always be those who are seeking to gain power and abuse it uh, for their own purposes and to the harm of others. Wrong, it seems, is always on the throne. But we know that our God is working in the midst of all of it and moving everything toward a good end for those who trust in him. If you're not a Christian this morning, who are your enemies and who saves you from them? What hope do you have when wrong always seems to end up in power? And when wrong is stopped, what hope do you have that those changes that were made will be durable enough to last? You may not trust in Jesus today, but I hope that as we uh, look at the cycles of corruption and turmoil in our world, that you might begin to desire a king like Jesus, one who will bring a kingdom of perfect peace and perfect justice, who never fails his people, who doesn't abuse his power, but instead gave up his life that we may live eternally with him. If you're a Christian, cultivate your longing for heaven. And there's a phrase that says, someone can be too heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, but it is in our firm belief that Jesus is coming back to set up his kingdom that gives us the freedom to be open-handed with our money and our time and our emotional resources to work for good in the world, particularly for the good of pointing others to this great King Jesus. Therefore, being heavenly-minded shouldn't paralyze us in this life, but drive us to take up the adventure of faithfulness to him and obeying his commands in this life. Now, recently, I've been reading through The Lord of the Rings, and some people have been aghast that a 36-year-old man has not read through those books yet, and I'm, I'm working on self-improvement, so please be patient. But, um, <laughs> and as I'm reading through this story, I'm, I was struck by Frodo's desire to get out from under the responsibility of the ring. He undergoes what already seems like a long journey just to get to this fortified city, Rivendell, and there he experiences great comfort, and it's a place of rest for him, and he sort of wants to stay. Um, he wants to give the ring away to somebody stronger or, or somebody that actually wants this thing or somebody that knows what to do with it. But he realizes that the journey to destroy the ring is for him and him alone. And that if he were to stay in Rivendell, it would only one day fall and that comforts would evaporate. As we look at the task of living as Christians in the world and, and not of it, you may feel like Frodo and Rivendell, wishing to give your part of the story God wrote for you to somebody stronger. But there isn't anyone else that can live the life, the part of the, of the story that God is weaving that is yours for you. You're it. You might seek comfort and safety in this life, but that comfort and safety cannot last. And you might encounter deep difficulty. You might be going through deep difficulty this morning as well, and the good news is, is that because of Jesus will not last either. 
You can engage in the dangerous journey of faithfulness to God because he is standing in the shadow watching over you and he can do great things through your sacrificial obedience. So God saves his rebellious people from their enemies. But his patience with them doesn't mean his acceptance of their rebellion. As we move on to chapter 12, we'll see that although he saves his people from their enemies, he also saves them from themselves. And notice the entire time that Saul and the gang are celebrating, we don't see Saul, Samuel taking part. And chapter 12 is sort of like that record scratch moment at a party where the music stops and everybody like, looks at the guy who caused it, right? Um, it's time for Israel to hear some hard things. First, in chapter 12, Samuel challenges them before, in verses 1 through 5, he challenges them before God and before King Saul to testify against him. He states that he's never oppressed them, and he's establishing himself as somebody worthy of listening to, someone who is blameless, someone who is worthy of receiving correction from. And this is important because earlier in 1 Samuel, we see that there were massive, egregious abuses of power. And Samuel is showing that he, that is not him. The people recognize that Saul is blameless in his leadership. He's been a good leader to them. And in verse 5, Samuel begins to turn the conversation or the, or the focus from himself toward the people and toward God. In the following sections, in verse 6 through 15, God, God establishes himself as blameless as well. He's been ever faithful to them, but they have not been faithful to him. In order, in order to establish this charge, Samuel looks back to the beginning of Israel's history when they were oppressed in, in Egypt, and God heard their cry and sent Moses and Aaron and led them out of Egypt to the promised land. But they very soon forgot the Lord, and so God gives them into the hand of their enemies to show them that the idols that they had trusted in were unable to save. They were as dead and weak as Dagon that we met earlier in 1 Samuel, on the ground, without head, and without hands. And this happens time and time again. Israel's rescued, Israel forgets God, God shows them what life is like without him. They cry out to him, and he sends a savior. Samuel mentions several of the saviors that God sent, Jerubbabel, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel himself. And this pattern of rebellion and rescue had been repeated many times before this day, and now Israel had found themselves in the very same situation. Now, even though they had rejected God as their king, we saw that in chapter 11, God uses Saul to rescue them from their enemies. They had chosen this additional king, an earthly king. And this chapter is sort of the transition between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. But God is showing that, no, I am still your true king, ruling over you. And if the people and the king, the human king they'd asked for would not serve them, then the Lord would be against them. But if they served him, then all would be well. Verses 16 through 18, God shows the people the severity of their sin. Now, rain uh, earlier in the time, uh, uh, in the springtime, would have been great for the harvest, right? It helps plants grow. But during the harvest time, it could be destructive, devastating to a crop. God, in this grace, wants this, them to see the severity of their sin through this storm. And as a result, the people are afraid of God and of Samuel. They're realizing their mistake and rejecting God as their king. And it might not be obvious how this storm or any other way God expresses his displeasure is graceful. Doesn't it seem harsh and judgmental? But what we need to keep in mind is, is God's desired end in all of this. 
One writer puts it this way, if God grants us a sight of our sin and his displeasure, we can be sure that he does not do so merely to make us tremble, but to make us tremble and be restored. So God doesn't simply want to put the Israelites or put us in our place, but restore us to himself to show us that sin isn't something good that God is keeping us from. Instead, it harms us and takes us away from who God meant us to be and it prevents us from flourishing. God's conviction is a means by which we avoid punishment and avoid putting our faith in those things that cannot save. And in verse 19, the people recognize their sin overall as well as their specific sin of asking for a king. They say, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel's response in verse 20 is a bit on the nose. He says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. <laughs> so he's sort of saying, do not be afraid. You're just as bad as you think you are, and things are just as bad as they seem. Uh, and I would have been prevented to say it exactly in that way, but Samuel doesn't. Look how he continues in verse 20. He says, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all of your heart. Samuel doesn't sugarcoat anything, but he continues that sentence with a message of grace. Do not turn aside from other things now that cannot profit or deliver, things that are empty. I wonder if you're in a similar situation this morning, a time where maybe you have been knowing, understanding that you've been chasing after empty things, things that you're aware that cannot save you. And years ago, I was at a point in my life where I was right there. I was chasing after a lot of things that I thought were going to make me happy or at least keep me from being unhappy. And I knew it. I knew I was doing things that was, were destroying my soul. Um, and I was listening to Christian radio at the time. Um, and I, I didn't know enough about how God's grace worked to understand that, that God's acceptance of me wasn't dependent on me. And the message in one of these songs that I heard was, hey, just God's not done with you yet. God's not done with you that, yet. I knew I'd been running after empty things, but God used that song to show me more clearly that God's acceptance of me was based on what he has done. I wasn't forsaken because of what I had done. Instead, God was saving me from myself to make his name great. And he does that, not just for me, but he does that for an entire people, everyone who has trusted in Christ. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The people of God often fail. I often fail. You often fail. But God doesn't forsake us when we fail. Instead, he points out our sin, the gravity of it, and then he points us toward his grace in Jesus Christ. And as a part of that, he gives us godly leaders like Samuel to follow after. Leaders who don't abandon their people or give up on them when they have failed, when they have messed up. But instead, they pray for and instruct them in the true and right way. Sadly, Samuel's time was coming to an end. And things looked bleak for the people of God. They had demanded this king whom God had warned that was just going to oppress them. And Samuel's sons were not walking in Samuel's ways. Their priest was moving off the scene. And as Samuel ends his farewell speech, another warning to follow the Lord, he gives them another warning to follow the Lord. And that they should fail to do so, that they'll be swept away. If they pursued empty things and abandoned the Lord, they would suffer judgment. And sadly, we know 
because of what happens later in the Old Testament, that's exactly what happens. The people and their kings would again and again refuse to follow the Lord. But God in his grace would send leader after leader in prophets to point people back to their need to be reconciled to God. And one day, hundreds of years later, a baby would be born in Bethlehem. And this child would grow up to be a better priest than Samuel ever was. One that would never sin and would never die. And he would also be a better king than Israel could have ever hoped for. Not one who would only save them from their enemies, but he would save them from themselves by dying on a cross in their place that they may be forgiven and reconciled to God. Christ took on the judgment we deserve, and if we trust in him, we will be saved and not swept away in judgment. As we end this morning, I want to read a quote from a Christmas song, How Many Kings, that shows us the surprising way that Jesus came into this world and the unrivaled actions he took while he was here. Follow the star to the place unexpected. Would you believe after all we've projected a child in a manger? Lowly and small, the weakest of all, unlikely as hero wrapped in his mother's shawl. Just a child. Is this who we've waited for? How many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords abandoned their homes? How many greats became the least for me? How many gods have poured out their hearts to romance a world that is torn all apart? How many fathers gave up their sons for me? Only one did that for me. This morning, if you haven't trusted in Christ, I beg you to do so. No other God or no other human king is going to do what Jesus did for you and dying on the cross for you. And Jesus is the one who satisfies the longing of every human heart. Use this opportunity to recognize your sin and the emptiness that results in chasing after things other than Jesus who died for you. If you do know Jesus, heed the call in chapter 12, 24, which says this, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. In this story, God brings people of Israel back to a place of remembrance, a place where they were to look back and see the great deeds of the Lord. In just a moment, we're going to do the very same, look back at the great deeds of the Lord by remembering what he did for us on the cross as we take the supper together. These, like any other time in human history, are troubling times. And there's much that can cause fear, but we have a king who has come, who is watching over us in the shadows and will one day come again. He is the God who rescues his rebellious people from their enemies and from themselves. Let's pray this morning. Oh God, we're so thankful that you are the rescuer. You rescue us from our spiritual enemies and you rescue us in grace from ourselves. Oh Lord, would you help us uh, in this struggle that we are called to in life. God, help us to pour out our hearts to you in prayer God, help us to live as exiles. Help this church to teach one another what that looks like. Lord, and would you help us look forward to that incredible day when you come to set up your kingdom of perfect perfect justice and righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.